Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Variants continue to be a problem across the country. Should we shut down air travel even more? India having a terrible time with the third wave. How did they get in such a position? Clearly, there's a systemic problem in the military when the top soldier is facing accusations. All coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. How was gym class? So fun. What'd you do? Balanced on the on the floor. So that's basically standing up. Yep. That's tough. Anyway. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. It's a new day, it's a clean mask. <sighs> it's the little pleasures in life that keep you going during a global pandemic. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! It is the simple things in life. You know, a clean mask, a uh, fresh, uh, fresh uh, set of track pants, and uh, off you go. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson show uh, between the pipes as we start week number 58. Feel free to jump into the fun. There's lots of ways to do that. I'm uh, going to play a report here on what is going on locally with CHML's Lisa Pileski. The number of confirmed active cases of COVID-19 in Hamilton has dropped to 1,501 after an all-time high of 1,988 on Saturday. The number of COVID-19 tests coming back positive remains high at 9.1%, and the weekly case rate has dropped slightly to 181 per 100,000 people. There are 42 active outbreaks in Hamilton, including new ones at Cable 14 and Copley Limited. The majority of variant cases in the city have been classified as B117. That's 2,139 cases of the UK variant, while another 971 have screened positive for another variant. 161 people are being treated for COVID-19 in local hospitals. Lisa Pileski, 900 CHML News. All right, uh, a local angle there. Obviously, we know what's happening globally. Uh, the situation that Ontario is going in is pretty much what's happening right the way across the country. Uh, and uh, obviously, globally, uh, we're seeing what's happening with India and the, uh, the terrible time that they are going through uh, at this uh, time. The good news is we're seeing uh, some real uh, vaccine coming into this country as a result of this week. Uh, 1.9 million doses uh, will arrive. Uh, including uh, 300,000, which are the new Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine. Uh, I understand that's not really going to start rolling out till next week into the provinces, but uh, the interesting thing around that vaccine is it is only uh, a one-doser. So uh, obviously that changes the game a bit uh, as well, simply because uh, I, I guess we've got about 20, uh, between 25 and 30%, I guess 27, 28% of Canadians have their first uh, dose. Uh, just under 3% have their second dose. We have to get to about, uh, what we're hearing, 75% uh, with the first and about 25 with the second in order uh, to really start seeing herd immunity uh, take shape. Let's bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well, Scott. Thank you. 
So good news is, doctor, we're seeing uh, probably the biggest week of vaccines come in starting with, uh, you know, the beginning of May and such. Uh, 1.9 million coming in uh, this week, including 300,000 of the J&J, which I guess isn't going to get out to provinces until next week. But the good news is that is a one dose uh, regimen. The advantages to that and, and your thoughts on where we are with with these kind of vaccines coming in and this new option. Well, it's certainly uh, got the potential for Canada to, to begin to make up some of the ground that we lost by being uh, very slow off the, uh, off the starting gate because we didn't have our own supplies. So it's looking pretty good. We've got a long way to go, though, as uh, I think uh, President Biden has been pointing out, that the first 50% of the population is going to be relatively easy. But getting up from 50% up to where we want to be is about 75%. That's going to be increasingly more difficult to squeeze through unless we see a great surge of enthusiasm. But certainly this kind of news is, is, is good news. We needed some good news for a while. The, another bit of good news is that it's possible, maybe too early to tell yet, but the, uh, the curve might be beginning to plateau off a bit. I mean, we don't want to look at daily figures. We've got to look at least, say, a 7- or 10-day trend. But at least it's not going up quite as rapidly. It's still going up, but not quite rapidly. And uh, keep fingers crossed. You were saying that uh, the first fifty percent is easy; the second is is more difficult. Why is why is it easier to get to fifty and harder to get to uh, well, herd immunity? It's 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 just an observation. I mean, you see, a lot of people have been chomping at the bit to get the vaccine. They can't wait; they'll do anything to get it, uh, go anywhere to get it. And then slowly, you get into the people who are a little bit more hesitant, and they've been told something by neighbors or by somebody on a kitchen table website, you know, they should be cautious. And, and so mm-hmm. the, the hesitancy begins to kick in. And then, then you get the hard-nosed anti-vax people. Luckily, there's only a few of those, but they seem to spread their uh, their uh, accumulated uh, nonsense around. And, in, and it, it makes other people sort of stop for a moment and hesitate. So it's that second part that we need to be looking at. So it, it appears that as we get into May, we're going to see these shipments uh, be steadily steady at at least a million uh, doses per week. Is this the sign of the large push? Is this the sign that you know we can finally get some of these mass or more of these mass vaccination clinics? Uh, the province is saying, I mean, we're still operating about fifty percent of our capacity here. Uh, yes, that's right. Vaccines are going to be the sort of the middle-term solution, and ultimately, I think the long-term solution. It's not going to be the, the solution for this week, next week, and, and the week following yeah. that. In those these next three weeks, the vaccines aren't going to help. It takes a, a, about two weeks at least to build up your antibodies, even from the first dose to that level. What's going to happen in this first two or three weeks, which are critical? I mean, we have hospitals now which are reaching the maximum. We're not, nowhere near what is like in India, but we're reaching the maximum of several of the hospitals in Ontario. Uh, so what we need to do now is to is to really nail down on the individual protection for each person. You know, the, the distancing, the masking. In other words, we've been doing that for the last, as you said, fifty. Was it fifty-three weeks or something? Fifty-eight weeks. Fifty-eight weeks. <laughs> but I mean, we've got to because the variants now, because they're so effective in latching onto your mucous membrane in the back of your uh, of your throat. We've got to sort of think about throwing away the mask that, that granny knitted and putting on perhaps one or two, a double layer mask of some kind. Different different materials would be good. And two meters are good, but three meters would be better. 
if you're inside for some reason and the window's closed and there's more than one person in the room, that uh, that person, all those people wear a mask, no, no question about it. So we've got to increase those precautions. Uh, Johnson & Johnson uh, coming in and will be to the provinces by next week. Where do you see this fitting in? Who gets Johnson & Johnson? Oh, because of the ease of the, uh, of the administration, as you pointed out, uh, Scott, it's going to be able to go to small communities who don't have industrial freezers, uh, the corner drugstore, the corner pharmacy, you know, that kind of thing. Even uh, institutions, uh, rolling buses and, uh, and even the back of somebody's uh, car, you can distribute it virtually anywhere. It's, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing. And with one dose, you don't have to keep tabs on once you've got the, that dose and you wait about two weeks you need about 21 days you build up the antibodies to that and you you're reasonably well for sure one thing we've got to be careful of is is that people don't see the needle coming out the arm and then they rush home no matter what vaccine you've had and start hugging people right that's too soon and the second thing is these vaccines are not polio or measles and mumps they, they, they don't confer lifetime immunity these are at best 94 95 percent and so we're still going to need to keep some caution going, especially for very frail people, people with underlying conditions. They may need to wear a mask when they're in a large public arena or something, even in the future. We know that uh, AstraZeneca, uh, there was uh, hesitancy around that when it was 55 plus. Uh, more studies out, more information. Eventually, uh, it gets lowered to, to 40 and uh, we see mad dashes for that. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the AstraZeneca from Europe or India has ceased simply because the, the, the you know they're in they're in worse shape than we are in, in India's case. And I don't think Europe likes watching Canada move ahead of it by buying its vaccine. So will this Johnson and Johnson help or sort of uh, take over where the AstraZeneca left off? There's also uh, it looks like we're going to get some AstraZeneca from the United States as well. Yeah, they've got tens of millions uh, stockpiled mm-hmm. there, and I'm not exactly sure uh, how much of that may be coming in our direction. Uh, fingers crossed. Them. Well, you have to think now, too, Timothy, with what's going on in, in India, a lot of it's going to be going there. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a really raging dumpster fire. We thought the U.S. was bad enough, but that's, that's incredible at the moment. And we're seeing all those nightmare situations that we, we hope we, we would never see, a lack of oxygen, people just dying, yeah. uh, drifting away because of no treatment and so on. Anyway, but the, yeah, the, the J&J and AstraZeneca are both viral vector vaccines, so they both belong in the same group, and they both have been plagued a little bit by this extremely rare uh, um, uh, blood clotting condition. It's now got an official name. It's called VITT. It's vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia. And they both seem to be plagued with this a little bit, but it's such a rare condition. It appears that the uh, high-risk group are going to be women who are less than 50, generally less than 40, uh, and, uh, and, uh, the, but the risk is something like, and I did the quick calculation on this, comes out to be about one per... 600,000 might experience these clots, and the proportion of those may be fatal. So it's extremely rare, more than 40 or 50 years old, uh, uh, and the, the risk goes way, way down to way, way less than one in a million. Uh, how did India get to where it is? I, to, to some degree, remember, they, they did have a first surge, and they, they sort of dealt with it fairly well, but they didn't follow through. They sort of felt that 
they somehow were in the clear. Nobody had any reason why for that, but the numbers went down. It may have been seasonal. It may have been a, a general approach by the population, but they didn't follow through and prepare for a second wave. And uh, Canada was a little bit caught like that as well. We didn't think we would get into a third wave. But we did. And in fact, in 1918, they didn't think there was anything after the second wave, but the third wave came along and caught everybody with their pants down. So we're all, came, we're all able to, be, uh, to, to, to lack forethought. And the countries that did very well, like Taiwan, for example, they haven't even had their first wave. You know, they've had, a, I think, a, a, it, what is it now? I forget the exact number now, but, but it's, it's something like 100 deaths since the beginning, I think. Some, it's ridiculous, simply because they were prepared. And so India, I think, has gotten to this situation where they didn't have the, uh, the you know, they were, they were, sh- they were ship- shipping out vaccines to other countries. We had some of the yeah. uh, Serum Institute of India vaccines here. And that's fine, but, I mean, what about their own population? Yeah, are you surprised? That was my next question. Are you surprised that uh, a country that produces, I mean, we that's where our AstraZeneca has come from, along with Belgium. Belgium. Are you surprised that a country who produces it has found itself in this predicament? I think a lot of countries have, have gone the line of, uh, of choosing the uh, foreign uh, capital coming in, earning that, that money coming in from abroad. Rather so selling, than, to the, selling to the highest bidder. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a very tempting thing to do, sure. So uh, w- how do you see uh, India moving forward with this? How, how do you see them getting out of this? W- oh, is, the next month for them dire? D- dire is an understatement. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, at the moment, they're desperately trying to search around for oxygen to keep people alive. I mean, that, that's the situation there. Uh, I- I vaccines will take at least three weeks once you start putting them into arms and uh, the country that's way at 1.1 or 1.2 billion people uh, that's that could well take more than a year and a half to do that I mean, you know so it, we're looking at extremely long-term vaccine solutions and extremely short-term people dying at uh, at, at very very high rates every day what about variants and air travel many are questioning why we're locking down yet people are continuing to fly around yeah, there's a lot of, uh, of uncertainty about this. There's one thing, Scott, we've had from, from the very beginning is surprises almost every week. This doesn't follow the, the pattern for previous pandemics, uh, certainly not influenza at all. And so, yeah, we've learned a lot about this. One thing we, we have seen is that, the, is that the, 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 way, the way the variants are really lethal is in simply that they are more effective in moving around. Remember SARS, remember SARS-1 in 2003? Mm-hmm. That was an example where we had it 10 times as lethal as the present one. Their, their infection fatality rate was about 10 to 11 times, a 10 to 11 percent chance of dying. This one was less than one. But, but SARS-1 never went anywhere because it couldn't transmit as, fa- as rapidly. This one, and now the variants are even more, we think it could at least be twi- uh, uh, 50% extra ability to move around. And some authorities think it could be even up to close to twice as effective in, in moving, transmitting from person to person. And that's where the headache lies. That's where the nightmare situation lies. And unfortunately, we're in that situation now. Britain was up to almost 100% of the isolations uh, before the numbers went down, that were the new variants. Canada mm-hmm. reached, uh, is reaching about 50-60% now, and it's on its way upwards. It, it simply takes over as a dominant strain. 
And 75% need their first shot, 25% their second shot before we can see any relaxation of, of regulation? Yeah, overall, if you look at the overall fully vaccinated people, we uh, we did the calculation at the very beginning when it came out, and we said we need about 61% of the people to be immune but before we see uh, the, the the what we commonly know as herd immunity, the transmission right. threshold. Now, with the new variants, we did a quick calculation, and this shows we need to be up in the low 70s. So, say, 75%, because the vaccine's another 100%, we need to see 75% of people fully vaccinated before we see the end of the pandemic. So you mm. can see the increasing rolling uphill as we get beyond 50% and we're getting to 60 and maybe we'll make it to 70 and maybe not, who knows. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Scott. Obviously, attention has uh, been drawn to India. They are just going through a terrible scenario there uh, with all kinds of shortages of medical supplies and such, despite uh, being a producer of the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. To talk more about all of this and, and where the U.S. is in uh, their struggles as well, Dr. Rod, uh, Rodney Rohde is with us, professor and chair, clinical laboratory science program at the College of Health Professions, Texas State University, and is with us now. Rodney, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well good morning scott i hope you are as well doing fine here uh give us a little glimpse of what life is like in the united states right now i remember a couple of weeks ago seeing uh, uh jay's uh, the jay's opener along with texas and and uh the stadium was filled and and we all thought oh, oh there's going to be an outbreak and obviously you're all vaccinated down there a lot of you are so that's certainly putting you in a different predicament what's the, what's life like in the u.s right now yeah, we're kind of in this uh, kind of an interesting place, Scott, if you look at the United States, because if you look up in the northeast areas of the country, Michigan, Minnesota, some of those areas and some of the other big states, we still have you know some things going on that are cooking in certain areas. But in general, across the United States, we are seeing a lowering of cases. We're at about 60,000 per day. So that's nothing to sneeze at or anything, but way lower than back you know months ago. Uh, mortalities down vaccination rates, as you know, are, are climbing and doing well, although we are having some concern right now in the U.S. that uh, we may be reaching some areas of hesitancy around vaccination as we kind of continue to move forward. But hopefully we'll get get everyone that wants a vaccine uh, jabbed and, and get that process moving forward. You talked about uh, still some issues in the northern states. Why do you think that is, doctor? And is that because of the close proximity to the Canadian border? You know, again, so difficult to understand why certain states are having this issue, especially in those states that, I mean, the vaccines are getting there and they're getting those out. So it's either a combination of, of variant differences or perhaps just less uh, adherence to public safety, masking and, and gatherings and things like that. But it's just kind of all over the place. So I'm sure uh, that you know, we're going to kind of come up with a way to look at this with genomic surveillance and finding out which variants are moving through those populations. Because when you look at other states, uh, we're doing much better. So there's just so many variables to look at that it's it's very conflicting when you try to pinpoint one state. But the uh, let's U.S. Talk- in general is definitely doing a better job. 
Uh, let's talk about supply. Uh, obviously, AstraZeneca is a lot of chatter up here, and, and obviously uh, our supplies w- w- uh, did come from India. We got uh, also 1.5 million doses from the U.S., uh, some from Belgium as well. Um, that being said, obviously India is in a, a very tough scenario right now. Uh, will we see the U.S. sending some of that AZ to India? I hope so. I mean, right now, every, from what I've read this morning uh, is the most current information I can get. I think it's going that way. I know uh, President Biden and his team has responded uh, with promises to send things to India with respect to therapy, therapy kits and, and diagnostic kits and ventilators and oxygen and PPE and things like that. And I believe as of last night late, they're promising to send raw materials um, for the manufacturing of AstraZeneca's vaccine in that area. What's what's terribly difficult and sad is that, as you know, when you're sending raw materials, um, it's still going to take time uh, to get those vaccines produced and you want them done in a quality way. So it it could be months, you know, as we kind of move towards 2022 before you really feel the full force behind that that donation. Hopefully, what I'm hoping happens is that the U.S. and other other countries that are able to do so will send actual uh, approved vaccines that are ready to go into arms, and then, of course, doing it in a way that you know they get there safely at the right temperatures so that everything's good to go. But that's going to be the more immediate effect if we can start getting those vaccines ready to use as soon as they arrive. Uh, we know that AstraZeneca isn't approved yet in the United States. Uh, from what we spoke, I think last time, it's, it's just not a priority for you because you have uh, lots of right. vaccine down there. Is is that would that be more? Uh, would that be more? Uh, would that uh, leave the U.S. more inclined to to uh, donate, not donate, but sell, get rid of the AstraZeneca simply because a they don't need it, and in other parts of the world do. Yes. I, I mean, I think that's exactly where we're headed. Again, I can't speak for the president or, or their administrative yeah. uh, help, but my understanding is that, you know, we we have done well with Moderna, Pfizer, and even J&J, and now that that's back on the, the list to use, we certainly have been using those, you know, quite effectively over the past two or three months. So I'm hoping that all those AstraZeneca vaccine uh, availability does get shipped out to where they're needed. I know that the president continues to talk about, um, you know, the priority is always going to be to the American public. But I, I do want to emphasize that I hope that all countries, you know, continue to collaborate together because, as we know, a global pandemic only only gets corralled when everyone that wants a vaccine gets one in their arm. I mean, it's it's every individual needs to be protected, not just a particular country's individuals. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, we're getting about uh, 1.9 million doses this week. 300,000 of those will be for uh, J&J, which will hit the provinces next week. Uh, how important? Uh, how how important is that one dose regime? How does that change the conversation? Oh man, it's it's super powerful, right? I mean, one of the great things because when you when you get the Moderna or the Pfizer, even though we all know that their overall efficacy is higher. When you get that first vaccine from those two mRNA vaccines, you're only protected around 60 to 70 percent, depending on the data you look at. But you have to, you know, you're waiting, of course, three to four weeks, depending on the vaccine, to get that second one. And unfortunately, what we're seeing in the U.S. is some people are choosing not to go back and get that second one, which leaves them susceptible to infection. So getting that one shot, you know, is really, really a powerful thing because over time, again, 
reminder to your audience and others, the, the ultimate goal is to keep people from dying and out of hospitals. And all the vaccines that, that we've talked about, AstraZeneca, J&J, Moderna, and Pfizer, ultimately do that. Uh, but to get it even quicker into arms with one dose with AstraZeneca or, or um, uh, J&J is going to move that long much quicker. You know, within two weeks after getting that dose, you're starting to protect the population. Uh, we had one expert on uh, just before you, Rodney, and he was saying that, you know, vaccinating uh, the first 50 percent is one thing. It's the last part that is yes. difficult. Are you seeing that now where, yes. you know, you sort of cross yes, that absolutely. hump and, and it's tough to get people back for the second one? It, it really is. And I can't remember if we've talked about this before, Scott, or not. But one of the things I've been mentioning for months now, uh, even in an article earlier oh, back in, um, gosh, I don't know, February or so, I talked about herd immunity in children. You know, we still aren't able to vaccinate children. And so in the United States, 25 percent of our population are children. So if you take that off the top, you're already looking at only 75 percent left. And now in the U.S., because we have been rolling along and and getting vaccines out, we're starting to see, I think, really the last couple of weeks, you're starting to see reports now that that in some vaccination centers, you know, they're not they're not long lines. We're not seeing as many people wanting them. And so I think we're running into that, you know, that level of individuals that are adults that are either not wanting it right at first or just don't want it, period, due to whatever whatever beliefs they're dealing with. So it is now really critical that we, you know, really educate people and work towards getting as many people vaccinated as possible. And hopefully we can get into at least that 70 percent. Most people want more than that, but if we can get up into that 70 percentile of, of herd immunity, we're going to be in good shape. Doctor, any idea how or, or thoughts as to how India got to where it is? Because again, we, you know, have a, a here's a country who produces it. So that's not right. the issue. Uh, maybe obviously accused of selling too much of it instead of giving it to their own citizens. But uh, any idea how, how do you, how do you get in this predicament yeah. uh, at this stage for a country like this? Yeah. It's interesting because just a few months ago we were talking about, you know, why has India not had the massive kind of issues that the U.S. Have, has had? I think, again, there's a number of factors. What I tend to kind of lean towards is that for many, many months, uh, when it was somewhat low prevalence in India, they were still doing quite a bit of large gatherings with respect to their religious festivals and things yeah. like that. And coupled with uh, this new variant they're seeing, B1.617, I don't know if you've heard about it. It's classified as a variant of interest right now. It has a double mutation in the spike protein. Mm-hmm. And so, again, they're concerned that that one may be spreading quickly and potentially not as strongly covered. It's still covered, but not strongly as covered in the vaccine. So when you have a susceptible population, low vaccination rates, and a new variant, you know, that's kind of a perfect storm for rapid spread and, and mortality and, and uh, illness. Talk about the difference in when this all started, the initial strain and the variants, because we've heard uh, some say that the variant is just a different beast altogether. It is. And it, it, thank you for that question. It's really important. And this is something I've been talking about more and more in the last few weeks. Um, first of all, let me let me state how critically it is important. And most countries are doing this better now. The U.S. is getting better. And that is the topic of genomic surveillance. So that's a big mouthful. But basically, that means that countries and states and regions have in place 
laboratories. Now, genomic surveillance testing is not telling you whether it's positive or negative. That's the ultimate first test that you get. But the second part of that is you must at least be looking at the sequence, the DNA nucleic acid sequence, and for this virus, the RNA sequence of these different variants that are in circulation so that you can model and geographically attract what's happening in different regions. I mean, this this links to everything, travel, you know, movement of people around areas, uh, which variants are dominating over others. And this is all really critical to real-time diagnostics and a vaccine use and coverage. So early on, you know, we had those regular variants we were talking about. And now that we're starting to see the virus mutate and evolve, it's going to be critical for all countries to communicate and collaborate around that. The great news, Scott, is that in 2021, we can do this. You know, I mean, we really have the Mm. technology and the communication systems in place. I think the downside to it, and this is a weird thing to say, but every time there's something new that happens, you know, it's a headline. And so sometimes the challenge is to temper that headline with good public health communication and making sure people aren't panicking um, and and doing things um, that maybe they shouldn't be doing, like, you know, for whatever reason, deciding they're not going to take one vaccine, they're going to wait for another one. And right now, the most important thing is to get vaccinated, to continue to be safe, to mask up, and to kind of limit that interaction with others, especially in countries where it's just cooking, like India. What about uh, the effects that variants have had on the U.S.? Has, has the U.S. missed this because of vaccination so quickly? I think we definitely, I don't know if we've missed it, but I think we're seeing a less impact, a less amplification, because we do have variants. We have the the 117, we have the South African version, we have the Brazilian version, the P1 variant. We have multiple variants in the U.S. that we've detected. But I again, I think what you're saying, and, and I tend to agree, is that when you have more of the population vaccinated and more of the population that has actually had the infection, so natural immunity, we may be seeing less of an impact because of that immune wall that, that we may have right now in the U.S., but that could change again with with major mutations that start getting outside of that vaccine coverage. So far, we don't believe we're seeing that, but that's kind of why that genomic surveillance is so critical right now. And it's still critical to contact trace and to try to keep people that are positive, you know, from interacting with other people. Again, that's kind of a lost point um, that we kind of have gotten away from is how critical it is to identify positive cases and to get those people quarantined or isolated. Even now, even though it seems like everybody is dealing with this in their backyard, it's still critical to kind of get those people quarantined and isolated and treated if need be. As you see vaccine come in, you've obviously seen what's happened in the United States and the UK and such. Uh, and how others and more and more slowly uh, become vaccinated. Where do you see this going, Rodney? Where do you, is there another, because, you know, maybe we did predict something like in India, but are we going to see this again in some other form? What's next for this, do you think? With respect to North America? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I was just kind of having that scenario play out in my brain today as I've been kind of following this over the past week. When you look back historically uh, at 1918 and what happened in those three waves, they had multiple waves. I think a lot of people tend to to mistake. Like, so in the U.S., I continually tell people for the past year, we really had three surges. 
that was kind of driven really by the same virus, more or less. An actual wave is when you have, you know, it, it's another season has passed, right? So if you look at where we're at, it's been, you know, right over a year um, in the U.S. And, and some of these other areas. And so what I'm really watching and concerned about is, as we move into another year, the end of 21, maybe even earlier than the end of 21 and going into 22, will we see an additional massive surge? Um, historically, again, that second and third surge were sometimes more deadly than the first. And again, factors like exhaustion from dealing with the pandemic, mm. you know, changes in variants, vaccination rates, all those will play into it. But, but it's interesting that 100 years later, uh, even with all this advanced technology, we still may see that people are just tired of it and, and don't want to deal with it. And that can definitely play a factor into a massive surge if people just kind of give up in, with respect to, to being careful and following public health measures. So it's, it's really incumbent upon us all to, to communicate that message and kind of try to find that balance between wearing people out uh, from the news cycle, but also trying to get them to march in line to that public health effort. Well said, Dr. Rodney Rohde. Yeah, it is. Dr. Rodney Rohde with us, professor and chair, clinical laboratory science program at College of Health uh, Professions, Texas State University. Rodney, as always, uh, great talking to you. Thanks so much for the insight. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Y'all hang tough up there. Here is today's daily commentary. Every province across Canada is working at about 50% of their capacity to administer COVID-19 vaccine. Why? Not because the provinces are incompetent, but because the federal government is not fast enough in bringing in life-saving COVID-19 vaccine. It is a race between the COVID-19 variants Justin Trudeau has let fly into this country and a vaccine he is very, very slow to deliver. It is not the provinces who are responsible for producing or acquiring COVID-19 vaccine. It is Justin Trudeau. It is not the province's decision to leave airports open while the rest of Canada stays home and hunkers down. Justin Trudeau has put every province in a very precarious situation by not having enough vaccine to maximize vaccination efforts and by continually letting the elite fly around through this pandemic while we are forced to batten down the hatches. None of the discussion we are having at the provincial level would even be an issue if JT's giant portfolio was here. Justin Trudeau has continually let the deadly COVID-19 variants fly into Canada through air travel and simply does not have enough vaccine to save Canadians in a timely manner. That is on Justin Trudeau, not the provinces. The provinces are simply trying to manage an unmanageable predicament the Prime Minister has left us all in. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This, of course, is a really significant issue for this government. They have built their political brand on being feminist, on defense and promotion of women within a variety of different institutions in the Canadian government. This issue, of course, and the knowledge, the knowledge that we have now that Kate Helper appears to have known about this and not told the prime minister it really has the potential to be very politically problematic for the government in terms of how it looks and also the messaging that these these allegations are being taken seriously within the government. 
All right, that's Global's Amanda Connolly uh, talking about former Chief of uh, Defense Jonathan Vance and the allegations against him. The thing is, is none of this is, I mean, maybe the allegations against him, but this has certainly been going on, uh, we've heard, in the military for a while. I mean, it, it, it's something that has been brought up every so often and then seems to uh, to fade and fall by uh, the wayside. Um, and, and it's one thing when it happens within the rank and file, another thing when it's, it's the top dog. Let's bring M, uh, in MP James Bezen, conservative shadow minister for national defense and is with us now. James, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, and I hope you are too, Scott. Uh, again, we, we've heard of this sort of activity in the past, and there's always chatter that it's going to clean up and all of this sort of thing, but it's one thing when it's a rank and file. It's another thing when it's the the top dog here. Um, what does that say? Well, it just talks to how systemic the problem is, uh, how the government of the day, the, the Liberal government in particular, uh, has not implemented the recommendations that was made in the the um, Champs report uh, from 2015. Uh, they sat on their hands, and even when they became aware of the sexual misconduct allegations against General Jonathan Vance, um, they did absolutely nothing. They turned a blind eye rather than getting down to the bottom of it. And not only did Minister Sajan and Justin Trudeau know about these allegations, um, but they actually um, promoted Jonathan Vance, gave him a $50,000 pay raise. They uh, extended his contract, making him the longest-serving chief of defense staff in Canadian history, and left him in charge of Operation Honor, where we're supposed to be stomping out sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces, but they essentially left a man that has his own jaded past on sexual misconduct in charge, uh, which undermines the credibility of, of that operation completely. You've spoke of, of obviously how he has been promoted through this. Uh, at what time did any of these leaders know about this? Because obviously there's conflicting information of when the prime minister really knew and who knew. And although uh, his top aide knew, he didn't, which many find that hard to believe. Uh, do we know any of that and, and how that relates to the promotion? So we do know, uh, and this is coming through the great reporting done by, uh, you know, global television, as, as well as what we've heard at both the National Defense Committee and at the Status of Women uh, Committee, is that uh, Gary Walborn, the former ombudsman, had brought forward um, uh, uh, an allegation uh, from a complainant, uh, tried to present it in person to Minister Sajan, uh, who is the only person who ha- could make a decision on how to handle General Vance. Uh, and the complainant, as she has said in reporting last week, wanted the minister to act upon that. And instead, Sajin pushed away from the table, refused to look at the evidence, refused to take the evidence, heard the allegation, knew it was sexual misconduct, and then turned it over to a bunch of bureaucrats, rather than taking the corrective action of having... The, um, the uh, chief of defense staff step aside, as we witnessed, you know, in 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 later in fe- February this year, you know, three years after the allegations against Jonathan Vance came came to light, um, when Admiral Art McDonald, who is the current chief of defense staff, had uh, allegations of sexual misconduct, he immediately stepped aside so that an investigation within the Canadian Armed Forces could take place unencumbered, but. That didn't happen with, with, with Vance. We know that Sajin 
didn't act uh, appropriately in, in, in addressing this. And we do know, based upon their testimony on Friday, that the senior advisor to the prime minister, Elder Marquis, was working directly with the prime minister's own chief of staff. And they knew this three years ago and did nothing other than reward the perpetrator of these allegations. Uh, we've certainly known that this, uh, the prime minister, uh, self-described feminist. We, you know, Chrissy Freeland said a feminist budget. How can all of this happen un- with a party that labels itself feminist? Again, there's nothing new here. These allegations, s- s- specifically against these people, they're new. But uh, this is something that's systemic and has been going on for a while here. So they're an abstract failure when it comes down to stomping out sexual misconduct and Canadian armed forces. Uh, many of us have said for quite some time that the prime minister is a fake feminist. Uh, they have, you know, they're all about virtual signaling and not actually implementation. Uh, and so here we are, you know, three years after these allegations came to light, and they've been covering this up, uh, you know, for the past three years rather than addressing the misconduct and the hyper-masculine uh, sexualized nature of the Canadian Armed Forces. So by turning a blind eye, they have made the workplace for women in the Canadian Armed Forces more dangerous. Uh, how many more victims had to suffer because of their lack of action? And this lies squarely at, uh, you know, at the feet of Justin Trudeau and Harjit Sajjan, who are the only two ministers or two cabinet uh, people that could actually act upon this to make sure that the chief of defense staff was was you know investigated and, and properly dealt with, and ultimately uh, sent the message throughout the rest of the senior ranks of the Canadian Armed Forces that this type of conduct it will not be tolerated. So it comes down to that, that what the prime minister has said and, and what we know uh, do not line up, and so the prime minister to think that everyone around him knew, but he didn't, is unbelievable. Uh, we've certainly heard uh, the word systemic used a lot. Uh, in this situation, though, you've got key players. You've got key leaders here uh, that are that have these allegations uh, against them. So clearly this is a problem. Clearly there is uh, a systemic situation. How do you fix this? How, especially when it, it's people at the very top who are being implicated. There's no question that the work that we're doing both on the Defense Committee and the Status of Women Committee that we're trying to get down, first of all, to the bottom of what is the truth here. And secondly, is to make sure, and and more importantly, is is to make sure that we change the system so that every woman and man in uniform can go to work knowing that um, they can safely and be respected and that we get to a point of, of no longer having you know, sexual harassment and sexual misconduct and sexual assault in the Canadian Armed Forces. And so independent oversight, which we're hearing from multiple witnesses, uh, is something that uh, we're going to look at. Uh, and uh, I, I, as, as we've already said, um, as a party, Aaron O'Toole came out with a statement that uh, myself and Leona Alislav and, and Pierre Poulhouse, my colleagues, uh, were all part of, is that it is time to, to go out there and do uh, an independent um, investigation and review of the current culture and the problems that we have, and then making sure that we do provide that independent oversight, whether it's through an independent ombudsman's office or something greater than that, uh, and that uh, the reporting of sexual misconduct uh, falls outside of the chain of command, including 
when charges are laid and how the investigation takes place in uh, the military justice system itself so that the, the victims can feel safe to come forward without any chance of being reprimanded by their superior officers of being troublemakers because they brought forward complaints. We remember uh, former clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Warnick, in his involvement in the Jody Wilson-Raybould and, and SNC-Lavalin uh, situation. Uh, apparently, when this landed on his desk, he said he lost track of the issue. How can you lose track of the issue when it's the chief of defense, when it's the, the, the key person involved? When we had Michael Warnick at committee, uh, that was one of the questions we asked, is that here you have the highest ranking soldier in the Canadian Armed Forces with the highest level security clearances who may be compromised for things such as, you know, blackmail and espionage, and that the clerk of the Privy Council lost sight of uh, on, on, on these allegations. And not only lose sight, but also, you know, then be making recommendations to the government and predominantly to the Prime Minister and Cabinet that they... Um, you know, actually give him a raise and extend his contract. You know, I'll I'll, I'll give Mr. Wernick some credit is that, you know, he was very, um, you know, candor, candid with us at committee and was contrite that he, because he failed to lose sight of it and lose track of, of these allegations in the bigger context of some of the other things happening at National Defense, um, that ultimately, you know, he, he take take some of that responsibility to ensure that the prime minister wasn't, uh, completely focused on how do we fix this rather than, you know, forget about it and let's move on. Uh, so is civilian oversight needed here? Um, where, where does this go from here? Well, I think that the Canadian Armed Forces, unfortunately, haven't have proven that they were unable to deal with it. Um, you go back to the Deschamps report uh, when she um, submitted that to the government in, in, in early 2015. Uh, she called for independent oversight. Uh, we've heard from multiple uh, witnesses, including military justice experts and former uh, leaders within the Canadian Armed Forces, all pointing to the same answer, which is um, the only way you fix this is that you have to have that independent oversight, and preferably that it's reporting directly to Parliament. Because there is the top leader involved here, uh, Jonathan Vance, is this going away, or uh, is this a, is this a turning point? Well, I hope that this is a turning point in actually uh, stomping out sexual misconduct. I hope that this uh, provides the uh, opportunity to promote more women into senior ranks, to increase the diversity within the Canadian Armed Forces, but ultimately uh, to create an atmosphere where everyone knows that they're working together with one common cause, and that is, first and foremost, the defense and protection of Canada. And we do have uh, so many wonderful people, I always say the best of the best, who, who volunteer and step up uh, to, to, to sacrifice and serve our great nation. And it's unfortunate that uh, a few senior leaders have now been implicated in, in these sexual misconduct allegations, uh, which undermines not only trust of Canadians within the Canadian Armed Forces, but more importantly, it, it hurts morale and confidence of those that serve, who go to work every day to do the best possible they can in protecting our country. And it is imperative that we capitalize on this sad uh, situation that we're dealing with 
to make things better and to move forward to ensure that, uh, that the best of us who serve in uniform uh, will always be supported and uh, we know that they can do their jobs uh, that are tasked uh, from time to time. Uh, Christia Freelin uh, said that she found these uh, these points deeply, deeply troubling. As Deputy Prime Minister, would she have known about this? I, I, I wouldn't be able to talk on, on her knowledge. I, I, I accept her uh, statement that she didn't. But I think it's a sad uh, situation where it's the Deputy Prime Minister, who's actually the Minister of Finance, is the one that's coming up and, 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 and offering... Um, an apology because we haven't seen that type of sincerity coming from the defense minister or from the prime minister. And so Trudeau and Sajin are the ones that ultimately have to accept responsibility here. We do function under the basis of ministerial accountability and the chief of defense staff only reports to two people in cabinet. That's the minister of defense and that's the prime minister. And so when are they going to show um, that same type of contrition when are they going to expect, uh, you know, offer their own apologies? I've asked for those apologies in the House, and we have not received them yet. Um, and I think it's because they're too busy trying to cover up their tracks rather than make things better for the, our Canadian Armed Forces. Is this not something more that will come out during an election campaign once the pandemic is behind us? Well, I think that... Uh, this is not going to go away easily for the Liberals. Uh, we know that, um, you know, there, there continues to be this unbelievable um, confidence expressed by the Prime Minister, you know, as well as by the Deputy Prime Minister. Christopher Freeland said it again this weekend that she has full confidence in Minister Sajin, and I don't know how that can be possible since he's the one that has overseen this train wreck. But uh, it's going to be something that we're going to continue to talk about, along with all the other scandals that have plagued this government, Uh, whether it's uh, S&C-Lavalin and Judy Wilson-Raybould, whether it's the Wee scandal, um, you know, and and now we have this national defense, uh, uh, you know, scandal happening right now and the cover-up perpetrated by by both uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and, and Harjit Sajan. So, you know, this is something that I, I believe uh, will continue to, to um, haunt them. And it, it, it's not going to go away as long as there's victims out there and people coming forward talking about um, the, the tragedies that they've experienced while in service to country. MP James Bezin with us, Conservative Shadow Minister for National Defense, uh, speaking about uh, former uh, Chief of Defense uh, Jonathan Vance and the allegations against him and uh, what's pointing more and more towards a a very deep uh, systemic situation uh, within Canada's uh, military. James, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks a lot, Scott. Is it time to bring in Scott Radley? Uh, Haley Wickenheiser uh, sounds the alarm and uh, is now saying wrong people are making decisions on Olympic Games. She's specifically talking about Tokyo, uh, but basically coming to the conclusion, if we got a global pandemic on, we should not be holding uh, Olympics. To talk more about this, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spec. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, well, I am. Did I hear you just say that you had your shot, your first shot? Yeah. Yes, I had uh, a week ago Friday, yes. Oh, so, wow, you, you're yeah. elderly. 
I mean, if you could get in that early, you must be an old man. Well, you know what happened? I got in. Well, I got into the fifty. No, I didn't. I got the AZ man. Only the boomers get the Pfizer, right? <laughs> so, uh, so Ted and all those guys, they got the they, they got the Pfizer stuff. But what happened was, uh, then it went on. Then it was available to in pharmacies to uh, to get the AZ. I waited a couple of days. Then I signed up. It took about a week and a half. Uh, then I got in on last Friday, which you remember, it was by the following Sunday, they lowered the age. Uh, Health Minister Patty oh. Haidu said we're lower, lowering the age. So I was in the last Friday of the 55s, and I'm talking to the pharmacist, and he said, we got tons of it. He goes, people are canceling appointments, uh, they're not showing up for appointments, and they're not making appointments. So it was quite easy before they lowered the age, not easy, but after the first week of, of uptake, it, it opened up quite a bit. And then when they lowered the age to 40, boom, uh, all of a sudden. So I was saying that to my wife and I were saying that it was a good thing that as an older guy, uh, meaning plus 55, that uh, that I got in when I did, because now all the 40 year olds are lining up and, you know, it's going to take uh, anybody forever. So, well, we're on uh, a waiting list and I have yeah. no idea how that even works, because I don't know, like, are we going to get a call? And they say, you've got five minutes. Someone can't. No, 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 no. So they send, they send, uh, here's what, and I got mine at Shoppers Drug Mart. They, uh, you sign up, you do your thing. Uh, they send, after the first week, it's don't worry, we haven't forgotten about you. Uh, which is nice to hear because you're thinking, come on, what's going on? Uh, then they give you a code. They'll send you a code and you take that code and then you actually book your, uh, book your thing. So yeah, it's, it's once you get to that code, you're, you're pretty much in. Now that said, we're talking. You and I are talking on the radio. I have decided that people talking about their own COVID vaccines is the 2021 equivalent of making your friends come over to look at your travel pictures. <laughs> is, I thought you were going to say scar from your append from your appendix well, that operation. Well, be interesting, especially if it goes wrong. But you know, every time you've had to have someone, or you come over, or you've had someone come over to look at your vacation pictures, it's fascinating to you, and everyone else is like, "Okay, how do I get out of here?" How do I get out of here? So I, I think that's I think that's what the COVID vaccine discussions are now. And we talked on Friday, Thursday, I think, on the show about the selfie phenomenon, or as they're calling it, yeah. the vaccine, and um, <laughs> whether or not this is a good thing or just the height of narcissism. I, my guest argued that it was a good thing because it's normalizing it. I, I'm still not at the point where I can say it's more than people feeling a little self-important. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting you should say that because I did not send out anything on social media until the week after the last Friday, the fri- last Friday I sent a thing out or Thursday that, yeah, it's been a week and I'm fine. And the reason I did that is because I taught whenever I mentioned on the radio and I had guests on and doctors and academics and such, they said, keep talking more and more that you got the vaccine because that's helping people feel more comfortable about it. Maybe, so, maybe. so that's, there, that, there was that was big, the reason, you know, I did it, but I did it like a week late. So, yeah, there was uh, a big plus I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to get like a horn growing out of my head too right so but no there was a big thing on cnn a few days ago uh their media guy brian stelter was um criticizing some people on other networks for not putting out vaccine selfies yeah and the people on the other network were saying first of all my medical information is nobody's business and second of all that's very true i don't know that um you know that all are all these people in the media us are we all putting out these selfies purely for philanthropic bettering of society reasons, or are we wanting to make sure that we remain in the public eye and we look relevant? And I think there's an argument on both sides for that. So anyway, 
I saw a commentator talking about, too, that he had got the AZ, and he goes, but some of my friends got the Pfizer. He said, it's like they went to Harvard. I got the Pfizer. I got the Pfizer. He goes, now there's this, you know, smugness, you know, like the Canada used to have over the United States before they started beating us, you know. I got the Pfizer. You've only got the AZ. It's yeah, pretty well, funny. The Pfizer, it actually comes with a champagne flute. You, you get a champagne <laughs> while you're doing it, and uh, the people giving it to you wear a bow tie and a, a nice white shirt. So, uh, unlike, unlike the AZ people who are wearing overall uh, sweaty undershirts. So that's right. You know, a different world. <laughs> Doing it out of the back of a band. <laughs> All right. right. Uh, Haley Wickenheiser speaking yeah. up. Obviously, she's in the medical industry now. She's a doctor, yeah. pretty much. Uh, so obviously, she's got firsthand knowledge of this. What are your thoughts on on what her points are? And this is Tokyo. This is not Beijing. Yeah. Uh, Haley Wickenheiser's position becomes very interesting because it's it's one thing for. Uh, people in the medical or political or whatever other world to say, look, we should not be going to Tokyo because you can have all the athletes now are saying, wait a second, I've just spent five years training for something. We shouldn't be quick to cancel this. This is my, my livelihood. And, and for many of these athletes, their, their potential success at these Olympics could lead to sponsorships. This could set them up for the rest of their life. This, this yeah. Olympics is entirely meaningful. So when you have all the people out of sports saying cancel, it sounds glib and it sounds like we're not taking seriously yeah. or sounding concerned about the lives of the people who we do. I mean, Scott, we, when the Olympics are on, we care greatly about these athletes. So we can't just poo poo it away. On the other hand, you then have the athletes who are saying you can't cancel, and that looks almost at times like we're being laissez-faire about this virus and about this pandemic. Like, you know, we should, we should just go ahead, yeah. even if there are people dying. Haley Wickenheiser becomes so interesting because she is a doctor. She's also an athlete who went to, I think, six Olympics and won four gold medals. And so I think her words carry an awful lot of weight because she very clearly understands the athlete's perspective. And when she says, I don't think we're listening to the right people and maybe we should be considering more carefully the idea of canceling, those are heavy, heavy words. And I, and I uh, boy, uh, I do feel great sympathy for the athletes. I really do. I feel immense sympathy for the people who have put all these years in and now it could be in peril. But how do you not listen to someone who has been there, who understands this from both perspectives and says, I'm leaning towards the cancellation side? When are, what are thoughts are in Beijing? Well, that's a whole other thing. Though. I mean, that, yeah. that becomes a huge, and it's a whole other one, but it's a political piece of dynamite, honestly. I mean, there are the two Michaels, and there's all this other stuff, and there's the Uyghurs, and there's Hong Kong, and there's Taiwan, and there's so many elements going on in that one. But you know what? Let's get through Tokyo first. Yeah. Uh, all right. I can't let you go without asking your, th- your thoughts on uh, the golf course debate uh, and people arguing that golf courses should be open. Uh, you know, you certainly can't argue with that as far as social distancing and safe distancing. But have we gone beyond that discussion? Well, again, I think, you know, people who don't like golf, are saying you golfers yeah. are a privileged lot who, why should we open golf courses when nothing else can be open? The flip side is, if golf courses are entirely safe, why shouldn't they be open? It's not about whether you like golf or not. I mean, maybe even if you don't like golf, 
maybe you like people to have good mental health, and for a lot of golfers, that's their outlet and their way to get outside and get some fresh air. Mm. And even if you hate golf, it's not always all about you. Just like it's about with anything else. Scott, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not big into this or that. It doesn't mean I should tell people who love that stuff, well, you can't do it even though it's safe. If it's safe, it's safe. And if there are numbers that back up that it's safe, and apparently there are, you know, we can rethink it. We can, the government has shown that it will rethink things. It will apologize for things. If it's, if it's wrong, if this is not a proper, necessary ban, fix it. I think people are questioning why others are flying around while we're continually to be restricted. And, you know, it's like, gee, you can fly in and out of here. You can fly in and out of there. Why can't I do this? And, you know, it's tough to argue with people on that point. It's very difficult. We're talking about it on the show tonight. We're talking with a constitutional law expert because there are those who say very clearly that your constitutional rights are being trampled during all this. And there are others who say, sure, though, that's, that's correct. I don't think anyone's disputing that, but they're saying that's correct. But under the circumstances, mm-hmm. we have to allow that to happen. And you have two very different schools of thought going on here. One that says we are losing freedoms that, you know, when governments take away our freedoms for bits and pieces of time, they have a tendency not to fully give them back. Governments like to control things. I'm not being par- uh, paranoid. Governments rarely give people more freedoms or relent or or release more power to the people. They hold on to stuff. So, you know, there is absolutely an argument that these are weird, dangerous, scary times that we have to do stuff. There's another argument that says, yeah, but can you really trample on everyone's freedoms to do that? I don't know. I don't know the answer. It's fascinating that, you know, we know what happened over a week ago when the province put the tighter restrictions down and, and uh, you know, police powers and such. I mean, all hell broke loose. Uh, did the same thing in British Columbia last week. And there's people upset about it, but you wouldn't get away with that in Ontario, <laughs> clearly. Well, it's no, funny. I, it's funny how the conservative government does it here gets hell. The NDP government does it there. And yeah, it's fine. And again, look, I'm not a fan of more police powers or more governmental powers. At the same time, while people are complaining that the police have more powers and that there's a crackdown on people's freedoms, try going into a store near someone without wearing a mask and see if they don't stomp on your freedoms and tell you. I mean, look, it's all about perspective and it's all about your view on this and it's all about where you're coming from and... Uh, again, one of the beauties of our society is you're allowed to have a different opinion, or theoretically you're allowed to have a different opinion, but that makes it complicated. That makes the whole thing complicated. And interesting for us. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there as well. As always, Scott, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.